I just felt called to, um, this has been kind of a transitional time because here we are in November, and uh, so I, I just felt called to preach a couple of sermons on faith, and, um, and then uh, Pastor Allen is going to be preaching next week as we get ready for Thanksgiving, and then we launch into um, Advent, and so we look really looking forward to doing a series in Advent and looking in great anticipation as we move closer and closer to celebrating Jesus being the light of the world on Christmas Eve, and I hope that y'all come, and it's just going to be a beautiful season as we get ready for all that. So um, here's the little second part of my sermon series is about faith. And so um, once again, you know, it's interesting when you preach and prepare a sermon, a lot of times you find yourself kind of preaching to yourself. And anybody knows that if you ever do a devotion or something, a lot of times you find yourself writing something. And so um, I found myself really kind of entrenched in this passage this week and, and really diving into it. So I, I actually have two. I love these two passages. And the first one actually comes, and you saw the title of this is called Iffy Faith. And so, because uh, the first piece of scripture comes from the Gospel of John. And this is where we find uh, Jesus has already been resurrected from the dead, and he shows up from the disciples, and of course, the, um, in the upper room. And the one person that's not there is Thomas. And we know Thomas is doubting Thomas, right? And so, what we find in the theme in this particular text is, you know, I will believe it if I see it. So, they tell, they have seen Jesus, he's been resurrected to the dead, and Thomas has these doubts. And so we have that. And then the other text I'm going to read from the Gospel of Mark, the ninth, ta- ninth chapter, um, we have this great story about the father who brings his son who is, um, well, he's possessed with a demon and he's just exasperated. And, and there, there's this conversation he has with Jesus and he says, if you can possibly help us, if you can. And, and so Jesus comes back with him, what do you mean, if I can? And, um, and then he says, um, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So here are the two stories today. And so here are these words, from one from the Gospel of John, the first one, as we hear the story. Uh, but Thomas, who was called the twin, uh, one of the twelve, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in the side, I will not believe. A week later. His disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have come to believe. And from um, the Gospel of Mark, hear these words. This is a little bit more of a contemporary translation. I like this. So when they came back down the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a huge crowd gathered around. And the religion scholars were crossing and examining them, the disciples. As soon as the people in the crowd saw Jesus admiring him in excitement, stirred them. And they ran and greeted him and asked, what's going on? What's all the commotion? A man out of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my mute son made speechless speechless by a demon to you. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, goes stiff as a board. I told your disciples, hoping that they could deliver him, but well, they couldn't. And Jesus said, what a faithless generation no sense of God? How many times do I have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy here, he said. 
So they brought him, when, and the demon saw Jesus, he threw the boy into a seizure, seizure causing him to um, grind his teeth, foam in his mouth. And he asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Well, ever since he was a little boy. Many times it pitches him into a fire or the river to do away with him. If you can do anything, do it. Have a heart and help us. And Jesus said, if? There are no ifs among believers. Anything can happen. No sooner were the words out of his mouth that the father cried out, then I do believe, help my unbelief. And seeing that the crowd was forming fast, Jesus gave this vile spirit, it's marching orders, dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, out of him, stay out. Screaming and with such thrashing, thrashing about, it left him. And the boy was pale as a corpse, so people started saying, he's dead. And but Jesus, taking his hand, raised him up, and the boy stood up. And after arriving back home, the disciples cornered Jesus and asked him, Jesus, why couldn't we throw out that demon? And Jesus answered, well, there, are, there is no way to get rid of this kind of demon except by prayer. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, thanks be to God. Amen. And amen. What a powerful story. Love that. Iffy faith. Seeing and believing. So, um, oh, when my kids were all in elementary school, um, I had the honorary duty as the father um, to go on the field trips. And so uh, every time one of my kids got to the fourth grade, the field trip at Citrus Cove Elementary was to go, can you show that picture of St. Augustine? I was the honorary dad. I always, you know, I, I, I was, a lot of times I was the only dad that went, you know, and, um, and so I, it's always great. And I, I think the reason why Donna really liked me to do this is not only because she felt like I needed to bond with our kids, but it's because you had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to catch the bus. And so um, I remember, you know, it's nothing like waking up at four o'clock in the morning and you've got 55 fourth graders you're in charge of. Man, that is awesome. And so I usually would be in charge of like five and six, so five and six of the kids and they would kind of divvy out the kids and we would all, you know, and so we would go, we went to the old fort. And if you've ever been to St. Augustine, it's always great to be able to go see that and explore. And then and then, um, then we went down to the, uh, well, it was this, the old doctor's office, and the kids really loved that, and see how primitive medicine was back in the 16th century, and they loved seeing that. And then we went to, um, Henry Flagler actually built a beautiful church in memory of his wife, and I think it's a Presbyterian church, and beautiful Tiffany, Tiffany stained glass windows. Amazing. Um, and so we would go see that. And then the highlight to me was um, to go to uh, the Fountain of Youth. And I don't know if you ever drank from the Fountain of Youth, but it doesn't taste real good. I just want you to know. It tastes uh, like sulfur. Of course, Ponce de Leon was actually trying to go to the New World, and he was looking for the Fountain of Youth. Um, and, and then we would go to the planetarium and what, when they explained that the planetarium was amazing because you go in this little room and then they put, turn off the lights and you see the stars and then the, the, the guide would kind of, you know, uh, explain a little bit about how Ponce de Leon and these early explorers would be able to travel across the oceans and, and so they would, you know, once again, the, the courage that they had to be able to go exploring. These guys were just amazing and, 
And, and I thought it was really interesting. I actually wrote this down. It was a quote that the, um, the guide shared that day in the planetarium describing Ponce de Leon and this trip that he was taking towards the new world. And by the way, I want you to know, when he finally arrived in April 3rd, uh, 1513, he discovered Florida. And I, I don't know if you realize this, but do you realize that the name of Florida actually goes back to the early church? It actually goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when he, it, April 3rd, guess what was going on around April 3rd? Easter. And so the Spanish had a Easter festival that was surrounded and was actually dictated about Florida, about flowers. So when he came to Florida, but it wasn't called Florida, he called it Florida based on the time of the year and the whole festival of flowers. So it goes back, the name of Florida actually goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you know the rest of the story. Good day. So here I'm in the planetarium, and this is what she says. They didn't know where they were going when they left. They didn't know where they were when they got there, and they didn't know where they had been when they got back. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. So, I mean, that whole idea of these early explorers back in the 1500s, you know, a lot of them, they thought that you would just go out and sail, and you would just drop off the planet Earth, right? They didn't realize the world was round, and so it was, it was quite courageous at Ponce de Leon to be able to go out on this adventure. Uh, you know, it's the idea of, I got to see it for myself in order actually to believe it. I, I was reading this last week and I, I thought this is an amazing story. Um, it's a story about uh, Florence Chadwick. And Florence Chadwick was a, uh, she was a swimmer back in the early 1950s. And so she took on this challenge. She was one of these long distance swimmers, these ultra kind of marathon swimmers. And, and so she was be going to become the first woman to swim from the Catalina Islands all the way to the coast of California. And, you know, okay, you want to put that in perspective. Um, that was about a 25 mile, mile swim. So I, that's, you know, and she was going to swim, actually took her 15 hours. And so it was very interesting when she, the first time she took this on, um, you know, of course the water's cold and, you know, she was swimming across this, this bay. And, and so she had a team with her and um, she got so tired and she just wanted to quit. And they kept telling her, you need to hang in there. We're almost there. And, you know, and, and she says, I, I just don't know if I can do it. And so what was interesting as she kept on swimming, the fog set in and um, finally she said, I can't do it anymore. I just can't, I can't swim another stroke. Put me in the boat. And what was very, what was kind of sad is that um, she didn't realize after swimming for 15 hours and breaking this world record, she was only a half a mile from the coast. Wow. And she said, if I could have just seen the coastline, I believe I could have gotten there. So guess what she does? She didn't give up. Two months later, she goes back to the exact same spot and she starts swimming across the bay, right? And um, this time, guess what happened? The exact same thing happens. The fog set in and, um, and then they want to know if she was going to quit or not. And she said, I wanted to quit. But she said, I could visualize, I could visualize, even though I couldn't see the California coast, I could see it in my mind and I was not going to give up. And so when we find this text today, 
about from the Gospel of John. It's one of those very powerful stories because, you know, we got Thomas there and, and we all know Thomas is Downey Thomas. And yet Jesus has this conversation with Thomas. And to me, I, when I started reflecting upon this seeing and believing thing, you know what? The fog has set in in Thomas's life. And there's about a week there because the disciples say, hey, listen, we've seen the Lord. And he says, you know, what? I believe it if I see it. And then Jesus finally does show up, as I just read just a few minutes ago. And then Jesus says these very powerful words. He says, blessed are those who don't have to see Thomas, yet they believe. I mean, by, by the way, that's a pretty bold statement. That is a direct statement. There's no fog in that statement. There's no is in that statement. There is no loopholes in that statement. That's just a plain, straight out statement that we get from Jesus Christ. Blessed are those, Thomas, who don't have to see, yet they truly believe. Now, what's very powerful, and so let me just teach for a second. What's very powerful about what happens and transpires in the story is pivotal in the Gospel of John. And the reason why it's pivotal, because on, the, on Downing Thomas's lips, we have one of the most profound Christological statements in the whole Gospel of John when Thomas says this to Jesus. Because Jesus says, hey, listen, come over here, dude. Come take your finger, literally in the Greek, and place it in the holes of my hand. And come and take your hand. And the Greek literally means come and thrust it in the side of where he's been pierced. We know that from the Gospel of John when the soldier goes and pierces his side. There's a hole in Jesus' side where the spear had gone in. Come and take your hand and put it in my side. And so what Thomas says next is very powerful. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, that is a very bold statement. And the reason why it's so bold is because if you go back and remember my teaching in the, um, about Moses, is the word Yahweh is a very powerful, holy word in the Hebrew language. Matter of fact, they, the Jewish people can't even pronounce it because it was considered so uh, holy. So whenever you see the word, oh, or you hear the word, see the words Lord in all capital letters, as I shared with you all a few months ago, it means I am. And so what we find here is that this particular passage, this when, 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 when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, it goes back all the way back to that story that we find in Exodus, the third chapter, the 14th verse, where Moses is having that conversation with God and Moses doesn't want to go and lead the people out of bondage, but God doesn't want to take no for an answer. And then he says, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, tell me who I'm supposed to tell him who sent me. And then God says to Moses in a very direct, powerful voice, he says, you tell them that I am who I am sent you. And the little translation has everything to do with that. The great, he is the great I am. He is the Lord God Almighty. And so what, when, when we find this, what I love about this particular piece of scripture, when God says to Moses, I am the I am, it's exalting God, you know, the, the idea that the deity of the, of the historical part of Egypt, they had these deities and they had these, these gods, these pagan gods. And so the pagan gods were all in charge of certain areas of life. Like they had a god of the sun, which was Ra. They had a god of the water. They had a god of the land. They had a god of all these different parts of life. And they had all these different gods. But when God said, you tell them I am who I am sent you, that means that he was the ultimate God. He is the sustainer of all life, not just a part of the water, not just part of the sun, not just part of the land, not a part of the birds, not a part of all the. No, God says, I am the author and the sustainer of all life. The I am is connected to 
the I am that we find when, Mo, when, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that text is connected all the way back to the book of Exodus, the third chapter, the 14th verse. And, and what's even more powerful is that text, if you do your detective work, goes back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, why am I? And, you know, realize this, that text actually is the throwback to these words that we find in the gospel of John in the beginning. Oh, do you hear, do you hear how it all connects? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. And he goes on and says, and the word became flesh and lived amongst us and we have seen his glory and the glory as of his father's only son, full of grace and full of truth. Wow. And do you realize this? That that text not only connects with the words of Thomas, doubting Thomas, all that connects with the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis, the book, the first part of the gospel, John, and it connects to what we find in Jesus' own lips. I give you a new command. I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, wonder Jesus uses in the gospel of John over and over again, he refers to himself, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am... Once again, I am, the, um, I am the vine and you are the branches. Over and over and over and over and over again, seven times. Jesus refers himself as the great I am. So you have doubting Thomas here, who professes Jesus. Um, most scholars call this the, the, one of the, the greatest Christological statement that we have in the gospel of John. Matter of fact, they call it the, 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 one of the, the greatest statements of the doxology of the early Christian church, the profession of Thomas. On the lips of this doubting Thomas, he's exalted, once again, Jesus Christ, he is equal with God himself. This is why this is a really big deal. And so we go from from Thomas having this foggy faith to this defining faith, this certain faith, this, this faith that doesn't have any fog to it, it doesn't have any ifs to it, it doesn't have any loopholes to it. Man, Thomas just puts it out there and says, you are my Lord and you are my God. So I think it's very powerful. I was thinking about this last week. I had a great conversation. You know, I, we celebrated the Veterans Day this last Thursday, and we, you know, we did this in the beginning part of the service, and it's so great to have our veterans and recognize them today. So I, I thought this is a very interesting story I read this last week. Um, it's a story about Ernest Gordon, and um, Ernest uh, was, um, you might have known this story. He uh, was in a concentration. He was actually a Scottish soldier, and he was put in one of the Philippines, uh, he was in the Philippines, caught, and the, and the Japanese put him in the concentration camp, in the war camp. And matter of fact, he was about, he was dying of, um, of something. He had all these open sores, and, you know, he had, uh, he was actually put in a special area where they, in the middle of the death camp, they had like a death room. And they, you know, basically, you never got out of the death room. So they already wanted to put him there. And so all of a sudden, these two guys show up at this concentration camp and their names are Dusty Miller who was Methodist <laughs> and the other guy was name was Denny Moore who was Roman Catholic and they changed the complete complexion of that concentration camp and what happened was that they 
in that concentration camp, there was a sense of kind of like a dog-eat-dog world. There was a sense of everybody just trying to survive. It was a sense of people, if you had something to eat, then you, you, once again, maybe you would hide it, and you would kind of hoard it, and you didn't really share it. And then these two guys come in, and they had the exact opposite way of looking at life. And they said, really, if we're going sh- to survive, we all have to be in this together. And so they would actually even volunteer to work for other people. They even actually, when they had extra food, they had food, they would share it with the others and they would go without and they actually took Ernest Gordon under their wing and they nursed him back to health so they took some of their food and they cleaned his wounds and they literally saved Ernest Gordon's life and what's very interesting Ernest Gordon went on you ready to become the chaplain at Princeton University wow and then I thought this was very powerful Dusty Miller a United Methodist, the one that changed the complexity of the whole concentration camp, he was crucified. I have never heard of a Methodist being crucified, but he was crucified. Evidently, as the story goes, and you can look this up, is that uh, the Japanese soldier that killed him, evidently, he continued to profess his faith openly. He continued to show love and compassion. And the Japanese soldier just couldn't stand it anymore. So he crucified him. Wow. So in this conversation I had with um, Dave Johnson this last week, I was explaining to him, my friend Dave is a a veteran, and so in the middle of this conversation, because Dave was over here doing our Wednesday night dinner and getting ready for that, and um, in the midst of it, I was talking a little bit about what he had gone through, because he did, I think, three tours in Vietnam. And and he was, once again, over and over again, I've heard this story many times. He said, you know, Harold, I continue to go back to this quote. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for a friend. And so last night, Dave was here and he reminded me of his friend, Dave Nash, who was in his platoon, who literally jumped on a grenade in order to save other members of his platoon. And then David reminded me once again of this text, and I think this is a powerful text that comes from the book of Isaiah. God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. So then I I love this story. Um, Once again, I'm preaching to myself today. The story about this father, let me just share something with you. When, when you have children, you know, you never stop being a mother or father. Can I be a man on that? Okay. And so when your children hurt, you hurt with them, right? You get it. So what I think is very powerful about this story is that this father is desperate. This is a story where his son has got a demon in him. And he continues to seize up. He has weeping. He has this, this gnash in the teeth. He gets tenses aboard. He's foaming at the mouth. And so, you know, he's lost his life. And matter of fact, Jesus asked the question, how long has he been doing this? He says, well, his whole life. He's just from his childhood. So, so he comes to, um, to the disciples. And he asks the disciples to help him. And so what we find here is this is, I mean, there's, there's demons and there are difficult demons. And evidently, this is one difficult demon, 
Because we find there's another demon story where Jesus, in the early part of the gospel, where Jesus, there's this demonic who's in the graveyard. He goes to the other side of the, and, uh, of the Sea of Galilee and he takes the, the, the demons, uh, the name is Legion, and cast them into the pigs. And the pigs go flying off the cliff. You know, remember that story? Remember that from Sunday school? Okay, so there's that story. But this story, this demon's really a difficult demon because evidently the disciples, they don't have any power over this demon. They can't cast him out. So this father comes to him and he's just desperate. And so he walks up and then there's this crowd that seems to be, you know, there's this big commotion going on. And so then they get kind of excited. They see Jesus there and, and so I think the first point of this little story that really resonated with me was that I realized that the disciples are in over their head. You ever been over your head? And so I think that the disciples are in over their head in this story. I, I think they aren't really prepared uh, to actually uh, take on this, de- this difficult demon. Uh, and and I, we all can relate to being over our head. I mean, have you ever like on your first day of a job, you felt like you're in over head? Or the first time you ever taught a Sunday school class or a Bible study, maybe you're in over your head. Or, or you know, raising your first child, okay? You know, I thought about that this week. You know, I, 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 when we had the first child, Olivia, I remember Don on our pins and needles. By the time we got their fifth one, I mean, it was all a piece of cake. I just went to know that. And matter of fact, I remember we have like thousands of pictures of Olivia. I think we've got four of Cameron, you know, it's, it's a, you get it, right? So you feel like, you know, you're in over your head. So they're in over their head. I mean, have you ever felt like you're over your head? I, you know, I, lived, I shared this story last night. So my first time I was really green in ministry. So this is back in 19, uh, about uh, 1986 or 88. And, um, and so I was, uh, I was the chaplain on call at the VA hospital. And so do you remember beepers? Okay, so there were things called beepers before cell phones, right? And so I was Dr. Beeper that night, and I remember I had the beeper by my phone, my, my bedside. I hardly didn't sleep at all in that night, and I, so I was the only path, chaplain on call. And so sure enough, three o'clock in the morning, they beat me, and I had no earthly idea what I was doing. I mean, you talk about green had, and so I was totally unprepared. I went down to the VA, and I found this family that evidently their father had had just died. And so, um, so I, I went in and, and I did the best that I could. I have no idea what I did then. I, I, once again, I want to tell you, I was completely unprepared. I was in over my head. And so when I sat down with them, I just, you know, I listened, I held their hand, I prayed with them. I, I cried with them. I just did the best that I could. So then the next day, true story, I, I get into the office and then all of a sudden my supervisor says, Harold, I heard you got a call last night. I said, yes, sir. And he says, the chief wants to see you. And they go, oh, crud, this is not good. Not good, not good. Because the chief never wanted to see me. Oh my God, what did I do? This is a true story. So I go march into the office and there's the chief. He says, sit down, Harold. And so I sit down and I said, yes, sir. And he says, I heard you got a call last night. I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, that family really appreciated what you had to share. And I go, oh, thank you. This is the greatest day of my life, right? <laughs> And sometimes we just, you get it, when you feel like you're in every head. So the disciples are in every head. What's very interesting, the complexity of that text is, Jesus, they, had, they said, Jesus, why couldn't we have performed this miracle? And then Jesus says, well, there are certain ones that you have to just have to pray. And so the idea of prayer there has everything to do with the intimacy you have in your connection to God. So what 
what's happening here is that Mark is trying to reveal in this very powerful way that the disciples had not reached this intimate connected with connection with God like Christ has this, in con, this intimate connection with God. And so then you have this part where Jesus talks about this faithless generation thing. And once again, that goes back actually to Deuteronomy. And so Jesus walks in and, and he walks up and there's, the, and, and there's all these, once again, there's these doubters, right? The, um, the, the father is doubting because he's gone to disciples. They can't help him. And then there's this crowd, there's, there's commotion. And, and so Jesus point blank and says, you know, how long am I have to do this? How long, I, how long am I gonna have to put up with you all, right? And it's this throwback to the book of Deuteronomy. There's a text there that refers to. And then the, there's, the, to me, the, one of the most powerful parts of the story is where Jesus has this conversation with this man, this father. And so he says, Lord, you know, if, if, if you can do anything, please do something. And then Jesus says, if, if, there's no ifs when it comes to believing, if, and haven't we all been in that place in our lives? Maybe we've been a little bit iffy. Maybe the fog has set in. And so I love this line. He says, Lord, just help my, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. And haven't we all been at that place in our life? I mean, maybe when you're, when you go to the doctor's office and they say, you know what? You've got cancer. Lord, mm, I believe, but just help my unbelief. Or you're going through some kind of crisis in your life and um, you're dealing with a spouse who's struggling with alcoholism. Lord, I believe, but just help my unbelief. So we, we get that, right? Um, the idea, what, the point here that Jesus is trying to reveal to this guy and so I think it's really, really important, um, once again, you kind of look uh, how this all kind of breaks out, is that I, I think it's really important is that, that you find that this is one of those things that we find in the scriptures where there's what I would call iffy faith and certain faith. And so what we find here is that this guy seems to have this iffy faith, and you can't blame him. Disciples didn't, couldn't help them. The crowd's all there. They're all kind of, it's all very iffy, right? But there is a place in the gospel of Mark where you find certain faith. And the certain faith, he gives you two examples. Here are the two examples. The first one has to do with the raising of Jairus' daughter. And, and when, when he goes and says, Lord, all you have to do is lay hands on her. And I believe. And what's interesting? Jesus takes her hand, raises her up. We also find that story where the hemorrhaging woman story. And she says, Lord, he says, she says, if I can just go and touch the hem of his garment. You know that story from Sunday school? Once again, that is not iffy faith. Mark makes it very clear that is not iffy faith. This is certain faith because she knew all she had to do, once again, is touch the hem of his garment and she really believed that he could heal her. All, she didn't, she, he didn't even have to know what happened. But she truly believed that he could heal her if she just touched. So that's not if he could. This is certain faith. And then you get to the part of the story once again. And there is this, this very powerful part when it has everything to the symbolism, the resurrection. So what does Jesus do not only with Jairus' daughter, but what does he also do with this boy? He takes him by the hand, just like he did with Jairus' daughter, and he raises him up. So what's the theme there? Oh, this is great, isn't it? Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection, death and resurrection. He takes them by the hand and he raises them both up. 
So I love that part of the story, this, this conversation that he has, this, this part of the conversation that he has with this, this father who seems to have this iffy faith. And then to me, once again, and so I'll wrap this up, is that I think it's really important that we understand, and here's the teaching moment for us to think about today. Just like the pivotal moment that we find, the climactic moment, and of course the climactic, the ultimate climactic moment in the gospel of John is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection. But what we find here, and the words of the Christology of professing Jesus as the Lord, my, I am the great, he is the I am, he is the God Almighty, goes all the way back to Genesis, goes all the way back to Exodus, it goes all the way back to the beginning of John. It's all there. Okay, so you are my Lord and my God. We have that statement in John. But here's the key thing that we find in this story. Do you realize that gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, is a pivotal point in the, in the gospel of Mark? And the reason why it's a pivotal point, because all before and all the other stories, Jesus is seen as the miracle worker. But all of a sudden, what Mark wants us to see in this story, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're placing your faith in the suffering son of God. Because what's gonna happen, don't miss the detail from this point on, Jesus is, continues to make his way towards once again to Jerusalem and we all know how that's all gonna end, right? Because he's gonna be crucified, he's gonna be resurrected and of course we have that conversation where Jesus is having this conversation with Peter and Peter says, listen, you're not gonna have to suffer. You know, Jesus says, you're, I'm gonna have to suffer and I'm gonna die and P Peter says, you're not gonna suffer. I'm not gonna let that happen and you know what Jesus said to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have a clue what you're talking about, man. So it's very important that we find this, I love this part of the gospel of Mark, this ninth chapter, because it is the pivotal point that we see this transition from Jesus becoming just, well, a miracle worker to becoming and moving towards a suffering, placing your faith in the suffering son of God. And what that means to me is that God understands my suffering. God understands you're suffering. He's willing to stand in the gap in the midst of our lives and continue to take us by our hands and lead us on. So we're going to close today with my, one of my favorite old hymns. And um, I asked Sean if we could sing this today. And, and, and what immediately, as I read this text and that idea, um, Lord, if you're, just, if you're just able, if you're able, um, are you able still the master whispers down eternity and heroic spirits answer now as then in Galilee. Lord, we are able, our spirits are thine. Remold them, make us like thee divine. Thy God radiance above us shall be a beacon to God to love and loyalty. So I close with this before we sing this closing hymn. I told you this is this, this text. This last week I've been preached to myself. And I think the reason why it's resonate with me in my own heart is because I think all the father really wanted is he wanted his, his son back. And all the boy wanted was his life back. And Jesus is all about giving us our lives back. And Jesus is all, well, sometimes about giving your son back. Amen.